Hey, it's Guy here. And before we start the show, just a quick thing. A lot of you ask how you can support the TED Radio Hour. And the best way to do that is to support your local public radio station. Here at NPR, we're launching our annual end-of-year fundraising campaign, and the clock is ticking to get your contributions in. So throughout the month, I hope you'll take a little bit of time to reflect on what this show has meant to you this year. And then if it has meant something, please go to donate.npr.org slash TEDradio to support your local station. And thanks. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Oh, I'm so happy to hear your voice again, Guy Raz. Just saying I've missed you. you I haven't too. seen you at last. This year. is the writer Pico Iyer. Um, I think you're probably now, this is the, probably the third time you're going to be on the show, I think. I think so, yes. I'm really glad I can be part of one again. Pico is known for his travel writing, and for part of the year, he lives in Kyoto. Um, actually, technically, I'm in suburban Nara, so 20 miles from Kyoto. And yes, uh, for really the last 27 years, I've been spending the majority of my time in this little rented two-room apartment in Nara, Japan. And it's just a place that you kind of fell in love with and that you, I don't know, just spoke to you, I guess. Just spoke to me. My first day in Japan, I was just on an unwanted layover flying back from Hong Kong to uh, New York City where I was living in 1983. And... In the course of that layover, I just walked around the airport town of Narita, near Tokyo. And at the end of my three-hour walk, I had decided to move to Japan. I felt at home there that very first morning, and um, I still do even now. And and I guess after you moved to Japan, you actually uh, got into ping pong, right? How did that happen? Well, my... Wife uh, is a very keen enthusiast of health clubs, and we used to have a health club just across the street from us. And she saw that I never move, basically. <laughs> I'm a kind of lumpish, unathletic creature. But she remembered I'd played ping pong as a little boy growing up in England. So she invited me to come and look in on the ping pong, and within three minutes I was lost to ping pong um, for life, pretty much. Pico is not exaggerating. He plays ping pong? just about every day. And I think what was interesting for me initially was that I've never really been engaged very much with Japanese society, but as soon as I was in the ping pong club, I was part of this group of 30 Japanese. I was the only foreigner. And suddenly uh, I had to learn how to uh, fit in uh, to a Japanese community. You get to this club, you start getting the ping pong, and one one of the things about it is is that it, I guess is it is it an unofficial kind of rule that it's doubles you it's not singles ping pong, exactly. And then we choose partners by lot. So every five minutes we're changing partners, uh, and part of that is so that nobody loses for long. If you happen to lose with one partner, six minutes later you're winning with another. Hmm. And when we play sets, it's best of two so that there will often be no winners and losers. People are very happy for it to end in um, a 1-1 tie. Every day when I leave the ping pong club after an hour and a half of furious exertion, if you asked me, did I win or lose, I couldn't tell you. I probably played seven games. I couldn't keep count of whether I've won or lost because nobody keeps track of who's winning the games. But that stands for what the whole ping pong club is about which is the sense that everybody should leave in an equal state of delight. In Japan, it's been said, they've created a competitive spirit without competition. Here's Pico Iyer on the TED stage. Now, all of you know that geopolitics is best followed by watching ping pong. (laughs) The two strongest powers in the world were fiercest enemies until in 1972, an American ping-pong team was allowed to visit communist China. 
And as soon as the former adversaries were gathered around some small green tables, each of them could claim a victory, and the whole world could breathe more easily through ping-pong diplomacy. What I learned, though, at my regular games in Japan, is more what could be called the inner sport of global domination, sometimes known as life. As a boy growing up in England, I was taught that the point of a game was to win. But in Japan, I'm encouraged to believe that really the point of a game is to make as many people as possible around you feel that they are winners. So you're not careening up and down as an individual might, but you're part of a regular, steady chorus. In Japan, a game of ping pong. Is really like an act of love. You're learning how to play with somebody rather than against her. When occasionally I come back to this country and I play my English arch rival, the only thing I notice is whether I've won or lost. If you ask me how was your game today, I won't say I had fun or it was a great game or whatever. I might say it was a close game, but usually I'll just say, oh. He beat me eight to three, or I beat him nine to four. Yeah. And somehow, just by saying that, I'm taking all the joy out of it. It's much better to say it was a wonderful game. Wait, you have an English ping pong arch rival? I'm sad to say yes, and we've been prosecuting this furious ping pong rivalry. We even、um, once played in front of 600 people in San Francisco, not to their delight. I don't think they wanted to see two aging English guys flail around on a ping pong table, but we enjoyed it. But I would say that my friend、um, is fiercely competitive, and so it brings out the competitive instinct in myself. And that really means that after a game with him, I'm very rarely happy because even if I defeat him. All I'm thinking about is next time he's going to get revenge, or there's only one thing way to go from here, and that's down. And of course, if I lose to him, I'm literally up all night replaying how did I miss that forehand slam in the third game or whatever.、Hmm. It's radically different in Japan because, at least in the context of a club or a community, the most important thing is everybody to be. Working together and and feeling and thinking together and and linked and there's a sense in which to think about winning and losing is to impose a binary system on a world and lives that are not binary. And if I were to ask you, Guy, have you won or lost in your life? You would probably think of certain things you've achieved and certain things you haven't, but you couldn't say I've won or I've lost. Life is full of unexpected moments that shape us and change us, from a game of ping pong to life-altering events that can change our narrative and our identity. And if we're lucky, we might pick up some wisdom along the way. So today on the show, we're going to explore wisdom in hindsight: how we often learn the most important lessons about life in ways we never expected. And just a quick personal note. After seven years of being your guide on the TED Radio Hour, this episode will be my last new one. And as you might imagine, over these past seven years, interviewing hundreds of incredible TED speakers, I've received a lot of wisdom, which we'll get to a little bit later. But for now, back to Pico Iyer and finding meaning in ping pong. I mean, I I love this idea that. Um, that winning and losing are not these、um, binary things. That it's just there's just so much gray, right? Life is a series of, let's say, wins, losses, and draws,、um, and 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 it's the kind of collective experience of those wins, losses, and draws that defines our life. I love that idea too so much. I, exactly. I think it really liberates you. Because I think trying very, very hard to win is not a winning strategy, and is not the way、um, you come upon happiness. I remember when I was a kid, I was determined. I'm going to conquer the world. I'm going to achieve this and this and this and this,、um, as most people in their twenties are. And then at some point, I noticed, well, this is like Zeno's arrow, which never reaches. Its target. In other、mm. words, let's say I won the Nobel Prize tomorrow. I'd be thinking, why haven't I won the Pulitzer Prize? Why haven't I got a Macarthur? <laughs> you know, and it, it never ends. And of course, that's a recipe for dissatisfaction. And the other thing I noticed, which speaks to what you were saying so wonderfully just now, as I get older, 
is that it's really hard to assess what the victories and what the losses in our lives are. The bad news is rarely as bad as we imagine, and good news is not as good as we hope. And life is rarely as simple as our ideas of it are. Playing ping pong in Japan reminds me why choirs regularly enjoy more fun than soloists. In a choir, your only job is to play your small part perfectly, to hit your notes with feeling, and by so doing, to help to create a beautiful harmony that's much greater than the sum of its parts. Yes, every choir does need a conductor, but I think a choir releases you from a child's simple sense of either-ors. You come to see that the opposite of winning isn't losing. It's failing to see the larger picture. I once lost everything I own in the world, every last thing in a wildfire. But in time, I came to see that it was that seeming loss that allowed me to live on the earth more gently, to write without notes, and actually to move to Japan and the inner health club known as the ping-pong table. Conversely, I once stumbled into the perfect job, and I came to see that seeming happiness can stand in the way of true joy even more than misery does. I mean, it's such a simple idea. It's this, this simple game, and like through that prism, you were sort of able to, to gain this profound insight. Exactly. As I get older, I notice it's the tiny things in life, the trivia, the stuff that we overlook, that really brings the illumination. I think when I was in my teens and when I was at college, again, I thought I have to read this weighty book of philosophy and I have to think about the meaning of life and I have to grapple with all these existential questions to, to bring life to the floor, to come to terms with it. And I delight in the fact that it's the, the, the most ephemeral, silly-seeming aspects of life that... Uh, often instructing me. And I would say that ping-pong has, has taught me these life lessons more than um, all the solemn-seeming uh, books or ideas I've entertained over the years. And I like it because, of course, it's also experiential. When I'm talking to you now about winning and losing in the ping-pong club, I'm really talking about how I feel when I go home every day. And there's no arguing with or speculating about that. I know that I come out every day, regardless of the score, really refreshed and invigorated and uh, eager for the next day. Hmm. And of course, this applies to everything, whether it's um, being a radio host or playing tennis or being a parent or, you know, this is what contentment is, to be freed from the sense of me against the world. That's writer Pico Iyer. His most recent book is called A Beginner's Guide to Japan, Observations and Provocations. You can find all of Pico's talks at TED.com. On the show today, wisdom in hindsight. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Capital One. Capital One knows life doesn't alert you about your credit card. That's why they created Eno, the Capital One assistant that catches things that might look wrong with your credit card, like over-tipping, duplicate charges, or potential fraud, and then sends an alert to your phone and helps you fix it. It's another way Capital One is watching out for your money when you're not. Capital One, what's in your wallet? See CapitalOne.com for details. Thanks also to GoogleFi, a phone plan by Google. GoogleFi is made with features that people actually want, like unlimited data in the U.S. and abroad, so you don't have to worry about overcharges. GoogleFi also works on your favorite phones, and switching is as easy as downloading the app. Learn more at fi.google.com. When Ellicott City, Maryland was hit with a deadly flash flood... There's incredible amounts of rain in the Ellicott City area. Uh, people thought it couldn't happen again. And then... Harris County 911, 
911. What's the location of your emergency? It did. God, this is worse than the last one. And the reality of climate change pit neighbor against neighbor. Listen now to Embedded from NPR. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Hello? It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Is that Curtis? It's Guy oh. Raz. I'm the host of the show. I'm Guy oh, Raz. How you doing, man? This is, uh, been waiting to talk to you for about a week now. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for, for doing this. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And on the show today, ideas about the wisdom we gain from sometimes unexpected places. Can you please introduce yourself? So my name is Curtis Carroll, but everybody calls me Wall Street uh, for the most part. And tell me where you are right now. I am in Pelican Bay State Prison. Um, how old were you when you were when when you were sentenced to to prison? I, I was uh, I was 17 years old. And um, how old are you now? I'm 41. 41 now. Curtis, um, I mean, you were a boy. I mean, you were a child when you were sentenced to life in prison. Um, I guess you were, you were part of a robbery and, um, and somebody was murdered. But I have to imagine now, at the age of 41, you probably don't even recognize that 17-year-old boy that you were. You probably don't even know who that was. It's interesting because that's true. Right on one part, I can't imagine me doing the things that I've done then. But I've never forgotten what life was for me as growing up as a teenager in Oakland, California. You know, going through the struggle that I went through. Now I'm not using that as an excuse, but it did play a big role in the things that I've done. And you know, I never really viewed my situation as being anything other than poverty-stricken. I never thought about, you know, we'll get a job one day, have a white picket fence, go to college. You know, that none of that never even crossed my mind. I mean, I just, I just never even thought about it, and i never seen it before. So far as I was concerned, life was about, you know, trying to make some money, and, you know, criminal activity was the way to do that because I wasn't educated and you couldn't do it no other way. Yeah. That was my life. Curtis Carroll picks up the story at a TED event that happened at his prison. The reality was, was that I was growing up in the strongest financial nation in the world, the United States of America, while I watched my mother stand in line at a blood bank to sell her blood for $40 just to try to feed her kids. She still has the needle marks on her arms to this day to show for that. So I never cared about my community. They didn't care about my life. Everybody there was doing what they was doing to take what they wanted. The drug dealers, the robbers, the blood bank. Everybody was taking blood money. So I got mine by any means necessary. I got mines. And I soon learned that finances in prison rule more than they did on the streets. So I wanted in. One day, I rushed to grab the sports page of the newspaper so my cellie can read it to me. And I accidentally picked up the business section. And this old man said, hey, youngster, you pick stocks? And I said, what's that? He said, that's the place where white folks keep all their money. <laughs> and it was the first time that I had saw a glimpse of hope, a future, but it was just a glimpse. I mean, how was I supposed to do it? I couldn't read, write, or spell. So at 20 years old, I did the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. I picked up a book. And it was the most agonizing time of my life, trying to learn how to read the ostracizing from my family, the homies. It was rough, man. It was a struggle. But little did I know, I was receiving the greatest gifts I'd ever dreamed of. So, so how did you start to sort of learn about stocks? Because I mean, for 99% of people, you know, outside of prison, it's complicated, right? It's complicated for me. So, I mean, how did you sort of start to, <laughs> right, right, to right. like, understand how they worked? Like, how did you figure that out? Oh, uh, man, it was a puzzle. So, when I started to learn how to read, I became a lot more interested in trying to discover what it was. And so, 
I see the markets how people watch soap operas. It's storylines. <laughs> so my goal was I prepare everything and research everything about stories, about piecemeal, piecing different articles together. So for example, I would see an article that says blue chip stocks. So I would tear out the article of the paper that said blue chip, and I would paste that on like a vision board like I had made. It was like a cardboard. Uh, then I'll be reading days later or weeks or whatever. I would see something that says blue chip stocks are companies that have pay large dividends or whatever, and I would take out the dividends. And so what I was doing was piecing together articles and stories. Hmm. And that's how I learned about the markets in itself, particularly just the companies where I started out first. And, you know, it was just years of me doing it. So what did you think you would do with it? I mean, presumably you were not able to invest stocks, uh, I'm assuming, while you were in prison. Well, so I have people who invest in the stock market who I advise right, right. who actually put money in, and I just tell them what to buy and what to sell and things like that. Right. Okay. And, and once you uh, started to invest, did you have a, a plan? Like, did you know what you'd use it for? So my plan was... If I learn about the stock market, I can make money, I can get a lawyer, and I can get out of prison. That's what I thought. Mm. You, you know, after I had lost my trial and all that, I, you know, I remember my lawyer saying, you know, man, you got railroaded. Basically, you shouldn't have been found guilty of for this case, you know, mm. of anything, if nothing else, the robbery. So that was kind of in my head, and I didn't fully believe that I was going to get out of prison but I believed that the stocks could help me get out. So that was my belief system. Hmm. I mean, I imagine that there were probably other inmates and maybe even guards who were like, you know, like, hey, Curtis, why, you know, why are you wasting your time with this stuff, right? Right. But, but the stocks made me feel good, right? It made me feel valued. Yeah. You know, so a part of my life was just always about getting in trouble and, you know, doing things the wrong way. And, you know, when it came to the stocks, the stocks was about structure. It was about discipline. Hmm. So by studying the stock market, I was learning all these different values that I didn't know that I was learning. Self-worth, knowledge, discipline. I now had an obligation to meet those on the path and help. And it was crazy because I now cared about my community. Wow, imagine that. I cared about my community. Financial illiteracy is a disease that has crippled minorities in the lower class in our society for generations and generations. And we should be furious about that. Ask yourselves this. How can 50% of the American population be financially illiterate in a nation driven by financial prosperity? Our access to justice, our social status, living conditions, transportation and food are all dependent on money that most people can't manage. It's crazy. It's an epidemic and a bigger danger to public safety than any other issue. Check this out. A typical incarcerated person would enter the California prison system with no financial education, earn 30 cents an hour, over $800 a year, with no real expenses, and save no money. Upon his parole, he will be given $200 gate money and told, hey, good luck, stay out of trouble, don't come back to prison. With no meaningful preparation or long-term financial plan, what does he do? At 60, get a good job or go back to the very criminal behavior that led him to prison in the first place. Incarcerated people need these life skills before we re-enter society. You can't have full rehabilitation without these life skills. Curtis, when you eventually um, get out, you're going to be prepared to re-enter a life that you haven't obviously been able to live for 25 years. Um, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, it, it sounds like this in this crazy way, this experience of kind of having your freedom taken away from you kind of pushed you to think of what a life with freedom can look like. And this is what it can look like. I mean, you have this body of knowledge now that you can take with you when you leave. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let me say this. Freedom 
is a feeling that you feel. It's not something that you have, hmm. right? Because, you know, there's many people in the street, society that ain't free, that's encaged mentally. You know, and they got all kind of drama going on and, and dealing with all kinds of problems and issues. Um, and I used to perceive freedom as being physical uh, when my body was in society. And I recognized that that's not freedom. That's yeah. a part of it. Um, but that's not real freedom. You know, freedom is expression. You know, freedom to be who you are, be your authentic self, no matter what situation you're in. And hmm. that's a harder place to get to than just getting my physical freedom back. So, Curtis, in your talk, you you say that you chose to commit a crime, and you take responsibility for that, and, and the result has been something that's dramatically affected every aspect of your life, obviously. But, um, but I mean, it's, it seems like you've learned some really profound lessons, despite the circumstances that you were born in and, and the ones you've lived in for the past 20 years. So, let me say this. I want to say prison is not the place for people to come find themselves. Prison is not the place for people to come be educated. The only thing that prison provides for people is one thing and one thing only, and that's time. Hmm. What you choose to do at that time is purely up to the person that's in prison. I've chosen to use my time wisely, like some other people and a lot of people that are not. What yeah. I hope that my story and what I hope that my life experiences had will offer young people, people in general, but particularly young people, is that time is something that to learn that you can use anywhere. Mm. You know, and people often say, you know, had you not have went to prison, uh, you know, you might have not have became the person you are today. Possibly so, but it's sad to think that that's being true. That prison had to have it happen to me, and so I don't want people to, to misinterpret that, you know, my life story in prison is somehow good to be helping people because it's not. Right. You know, society right. is where these programs, where we're supposed to be, you know, helping our youth, helping people, and that's part of my goal when I get out of here. You know, I like to think that I've made great use of it by choice, uh, but not every people is going to make that choice, and not every people is going to have the opportunity to make that choice. So I just want to say, man, you know, prison is not the place. It, prison is not the place for that. That's Curtis Carroll. He's also known as Wall Street. He's the co-founder of Project Feel. It's a nonprofit dedicated to financial and emotional literacy. By the way, Curtis will be up for parole soon, so he could potentially get out of prison in the next six months. You can see Curtis's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, wisdom in hindsight. How some of the most meaningful things we learn can take a really long time to reveal themselves. I've been singing since I was, since I can remember. And I remember my first audition, I was probably like six or seven. And I found my people. (laughs) So these were uh, singers who were really interested in drama, who were really interested in acting. You know, we got to do operas right from the beginning. Um, When I was 11, I was an altar boy in the Canadian Opera Company's production of Tosca. I get to stay up late. I get to go into this opera house. They paint my makeup on. They put me in this costume. I get to run around while doing something that I absolutely love. And then they give me a check. So that's how I, (laughs) that was really what solidified my love for music. This is Indre Viscontis. Indre's an opera singer. And I also work for the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, where I help musicians use the tools of neuroscience to practice more effectively. So an opera singer and neuroscientist. Okay. So in in high school, um, I got much more interested in in science in addition to music, and I discovered Oliver Sacks. And so when I graduated from high school, I had to make a choice between what I was going to do next in in university. And my mother is a conductor and a musician, and she basically said, go get a medical degree. (laughs) It's really hard. It's really hard to make a living as a musician. And, um, you know, we didn't, I did not come from a wealthy family. We were immigrants and we had no money. And so whatever I was going to do in university, I had to f- pay for it myself. So Andre went to school to study psychology and then on to graduate school, learning about how memory works, how brains recover from surgery. And she kept practicing music, but she did it 
kind of in secret. Because I felt like, look, all these other PhD students are working really hard. You know, they never leave the lab. And if I, like, take that hour every day, like, they're just, they're not, they're not going to think I'm serious. And so, you know, I kind of felt like that was my dirty little secret. That, that, that must have been, that, that must have been hard to keep up. Yeah. And, you know, I think there comes a time in every grad student's life when they realize, like, okay, like, now I just need to do I need to just do this until I can get it done and, and, and because the competition is so stiff. And uh, so when I really immersed myself into the work of being a neuroscientist, uh, you know, I did fine and I got it done, but I, it was like, like the light inside my soul dimmed a little. <laughs> like it was like I was uh, selling something and it just didn't, I got really angry, I got really irritable and I didn't like who I became. So after Indre finished her Ph.D., she enrolled in a master's program in music. She spent a summer in Italy, performed the classics, completely dedicated herself to music. And honestly, she was kind of relieved to step away from hard science. That is, until she realized that neuroscience could actually make her a better singer. So I'm going to say something I probably shouldn't say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, The person that was teaching vocal pedagogy, I felt, really did not know how the brain learns and remembers. And the things that I was taught in that class, like made my eyebrows stand up in my forehead, like absolutely that's not the right way (laughs) to teach singing. And so, you know, that made me think, well, wait a minute. If like these experts in this amazing conservatory don't know the basic fundamentals of, you know, how we learn motor skills, like isn't there a way that neuroscience could really help musicians Maybe bringing in some neuroscience would make it easier for me to get better faster as a musician. And then I stumbled across this one paper by Valerie Salampour and her colleagues and Robert Zatori at McGill. Because you see, in the Salampour paper, they show that there are two regions of the brain that mediate getting the chills from music, and they tracked dopamine in these regions. They're the caudate and the nucleus accumbens. Andre Viscontis continues on the TED stage. Now, you can think of the caudate as your parent. It tells you that your behavior has consequences. It tracks how the things that you see and hear and observe and do have outcomes. It sets up the expectation of a reward of pleasure, and it ensures that in the future you will behave in such a way that you will seek reward and avoid the things that led to punishment. The caudate is awash with dopamine when you are leading up to the special moment that will give you the chills. But when you get to the moment that gives you the chills, there's a dopamine spike in your nucleus accumbens. Your nucleus accumbens is your BFF. It's your best friend for life. Because more dopamine in the nucleus accumbens correlates with a bigger high. The intensity of the chills that you feel from music depends on how much dopamine there is in your nucleus accumbens. But the number of times you get the chills, or if you get them at all, depends on the amount of dopamine in your caudate. That's what I learned. That's what it means to be musical. In just a moment, we'll hear more from Indre Viscontis about how she learned to tap into the brains of her audience to deliver a more powerful, more emotional performance. Stay with us on the show today, Wisdom in Hindsight. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the American Jewish World Service, working together for more than 30 years to build a more just and equitable world. Learn more at AJWS.org. The chat bot on Sheila's phone is supposed to ask her questions, but when she starts asking it questions, it sends her poetry. Secret dwelling place, mysteries held in the dirt. Time has other plans. What happens when you treat artificial intelligence with love on the new episode of Invisibilia from NPR? It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, wisdom in hindsight. Ideas about the lessons we learn from sometimes unexpected places. And before the break, we were talking with Andre Viscontis, a neuroscientist who was training as an opera singer. My teacher used to say to me in my lessons all the time, Andre, you need to focus on all the notes 
leading up to the high note. You can't just think about the high note. And I'm like, no, that's wrong, because if I miss the high note, no one's going to pay me. Like, that's the money note. That They call it the money note. And uh, and so, you know, I, I would listen to her and I would try to do what she said, but I never really got it until I read this paper. A research paper that showed there was real science to back up what her teacher had been saying. The intensity of the chills that you feel from music depends on how much dopamine there is in your nucleus accumbens. That the number of times you get the chills, or if you get them at all, depends on the amount of dopamine in your caudate. And then it clicked. That's what I learned. That's what it means to be musical. And I was like, that's exactly right. If I don't set it up right, the audience, first of all, is not going to have that pleasurable experience of getting the chills. And, you know, I'm probably not being very musical because I'm just essentially not, I'm not creating this tension that eventually will be released. And it changed the way I perform. So, you know, I used to be like, oh, I'm nervous about the high note. Got to get to the high note. Boom, zoop up there. And now I'm like, I'm going to take my time. (laughs) Even before I start to sing, I'm going to stand here until the silence is uncomfortable. (laughs) Because what I'm doing is I'm setting up in the brains of the audience, you know, this desire for me to do my job. And it makes my job as a singer so much easier. And got rid of so much anxiety, too. That was the interesting Hmm. thing. Like, I used to have so much anxiety when I was standing in front, you know, about to start to sing, thinking, like, are they going to like me? Are they going to like me? Are they going to like me? And then, like, now I just stand there and I'm going to, like, the longer I stand here, the more you're going to like me. Huh. So neuroscience helps you become a better performer. But, I mean, it also sounds sounds to me like music brought more joy to your work in neuroscience, right? Yeah. I mean, it absolutely goes both ways. Um, not only did music make me a better neuroscientist, neuroscience made me a better musician, but, it, it, you know, it's both. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, sometimes we just get caught up in, we get so fixated on, on one way of looking at things. Um, and that just limits us. And so, I, you know, when it comes to um, trying to think of what to study now as a neuroscientist, I, I, I've started to really always go back to is whatever I find going to be interesting to, you know, people, my friends, people I care about, like other musicians? <laughs> and if the answer is it's only going to be interesting to the other cognitive neuroscientists at the conference, it's not, I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something that I want to spend my time doing right now. But if it's something that when I finally get the results, I can share with my musician friends or, you know, I can share with my educator friends or I can share with play public, and it's going to be interesting to everyone, or at least to a a subset of those people that are not also cognitive neuroscientists, then I think it's worth doing. That's Indre Viscontis, neuroscientist and soprano, singing a piece from the opera La Traviata. And if we wait for it, I think we'll get a spike of dopamine. Right... Now. On the show today, wisdom in hindsight. And as I mentioned earlier, this is my last new episode. And after interviewing hundreds of incredible speakers for this show, I'm going to switch around to the other side of the table and, if you don't mind, pass the mic on to the next host of the TED Radio Hour, Manoush Samarodi. Hello. Oh, hey. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Um, Are you... How do you feel? I feel oddly calm. Right. Which you should... Yeah. That's great. I know. I think that means I'm a grown-up now, guy. Yeah. I I think that's, (laughs) that's great. Okay. So... You're wrapping up your last episode, Guy, and I kind of want to turn the tables and ask you, what strikes you about the last seven years? What are some of the ideas, the people that you will take with you as you go into the next chapter? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that that throughout the seven years I've been the host of the show, Every interview is like um, it's a journey, and and every interview is extremely meaningful, right? Like I interviewed you; you were on the show, yeah. And I remember our interview, and it was so 
it was so great and you were so kind and and funny and warm and um, generous with your ideas oh, thanks and so every interview is like it's gonna sound a little weird but it's like a a, a whirlwind romance I fall in love with everybody I interview for that <laughs> hour and I love that yeah you, you kind of have to because I am there to to bring the to help that person bring their idea out into the world because I think that's an idea worth hearing that hopefully will give our listeners something to take with them. Yeah. There are so many of these conversations, hundreds of these conversations that have been those experiences. Um, there are a few that I really I come back to a lot. Um, we had this episode that we did on memory. Hmm. And we invited Daniel Kahneman on. He had given a TED Talk about memory. And um, when I interviewed him, he had just returned from Switzerland. Mm. And I said, how'd it go? And he said, it was wonderful. It was, it was amazing. And I said, oh, that sounds great. Um, he said, but we left, a, we left a day early. I said, oh, no, what happened? He said, oh, no, no, we decided to leave a day early because we were having such a good time. <laughs> And I was confused at that point, right? Yeah. Because I thought, well, why would you leave a vacation a day early? And then began this conversation about memory. And my wife and I both decided not to. So you decided to cut short your vacation just to make sure that you wouldn't you wouldn't mess it up? That we wouldn't ruin the memory. I even mean, though, you know, even though you might have had a great day. Absolutely. Wow. Depending on how you look at it, this could be a mistake. It really depends how much weight you want to give to the kind of memory you keep. Why does that happen? I mean, why why do we remember things based on the on what happened at the end? On I mean, the peak and the end? Yeah. Actually, I think there is a good evolutionary reason for this. You know, if you were to design an animal and you were economizing on how complicated the brain of that animal would be, you might say, well, I want the animal to store the peak and to store the end and how long the episode was really doesn't matter. What matters is how bad were the threat and and whether the story ended well. That's what the animal needs in order to plan the future to decide whether to have that encounter again or to avoid it at all costs. And it's the very last memory we take from an experience that shapes how we remember it. Mm. And so as a result, he he lives his life that way. Like he will leave things when he is enjoying it. And almost immediately after that interview, it really changed the way I try and experience things. Like if I'm at a party or an event and it's really great and I'm really enjoying it, I'll leave. Do <laughs> you say goodbye? Yeah, I'll, I'll go. I won't. I'm not the last person there, you know, um, singing along with the karaoke and uh, with a drink in my hand. Like, I will leave and and go home and go to sleep and just had, have great memories of that evening or that experience. And I was, I was thinking about this conversation I had with Danny Kahn. This is, you know, four or five years ago now. And it struck me that it is connected to, in some ways, my decision to move on from TED Radio Hour. Oh, yeah. Because it's been an incredible experience to be the host of this show for, you know, and and to, to be part of this world. And I'm so happy. You know, it's been so wonderful. And I'm so excited to hear you take this show into a different direction. And that's the that's like the way you kind of want to leave a memory, right? Yeah, that's pretty poetic, I would say. Okay, so Danny Kahneman, who else? I mean, which interviews do you find yourself just thinking about all the time, even after all these years? Um, a couple of years ago, we had Elizabeth Gilbert on the show, obviously the writer of, of Eat, Pray, Love. Um, and she said something really profound in that conversation, something that I have never forgotten. I think about all the time, which is that we shouldn't necessarily follow our passion, but we should follow our curiosity. You know, that that is the thing that is going to lead us down a road um, towards the things we feel, you know, th- that we feel strongly about or that bring us joy or pleasure or, you know, inspire us. We keep telling people to follow their passion. And I feel like that can be an intimidating and almost cruel 
thing to say to people at times because, first of all, if somebody has one central, powerful, burning passion, they're probably already following it because that's sort of the definition of passion is that you don't have a choice. If you don't, which is a lot of people, have one central burning passion and somebody tells you to follow your passion, I think you have the right to give them the finger. <laughs> um, because it just makes you feel worse. And so I always say to people, forget it. Like, if you don't have a, an obvious passion, forget about it. Follow your curiosity. Because passion is sort of a tower of flame that is not always accessible. And curiosity is something that anybody can access any day. Your curiosity may lead you to your passion, or it may not. It may have been for, air quotes, nothing. In which case, all you've done your entire life is spend your existence in pursuit of the things that made you feel curious and inspired, and that should be good enough. In a lot of ways, that's sort of been a metaphor for what we do on the show, because it's really about watching a lot of TED Talks and and just getting inspired by an idea and then building a show around, around that idea. Mm. Wanting to know more about what yeah. they said. Yeah. I'm going to assume that there are some people who just think because you have interviewed all these amazing people and had so many hard conversations about so many topics uh, that you must have internalized a lot of the lessons that they bring to you to these interviews uh, from their talks. And that maybe, I don't know, maybe you're like a super better person in some way because you get to talk. I mean, am I going to go through a transformation guy? I guess is what I want to know. I mean, I mean, yes, yes, of course. I'm, I think what I've learned even from, you know, talking to people who are just so inspiring to me that I have so much admiration for is that we are all flawed and complex, right? Every single one of us, right? Every single mm-hmm. one of us can be unkind and unforgiving. Um, but what I... I, I love this idea that we also change a lot. Um, mm. We had we had Dan Gilbert on. He's he he's a, a professor of psychology at Harvard, and he he did a lot of research into how our personalities really change profoundly over the course of our lives. Hmm. We don't think that's the case, but what he has shown is that more or less every ten years, who we are. Our personalities, our values change a lot. Mm. Most of us can remember who we were 10 years ago, but we find it hard to imagine who we're going to be. And then we mistakenly think that because it's hard to imagine, it's not likely to happen. Sorry, when people say, I can't imagine that, they're usually talking about their own lack of imagination and not about the unlikelihood of the event that they're describing. The bottom line is, time is a powerful force. It transforms our preferences, it reshapes our values, it alters our personalities. We seem to appreciate this fact, but only in retrospect. Only when we look backwards do we realize how much change happens in a decade. It's as if, for most of us, the present is a magic time. It's a watershed on the timeline. It's the moment at which we finally become ourselves. Human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. The person you are right now is as transient, as fleeting, and as temporary as all the people you've ever been. The one constant in our life is change. I love that because I think that you you could argue that over the course of our lives we become increasingly sort of better versions of our previous self, which I hope is true because I, um, I, you know, like I think most people, I am still a work in progress and I hope, uh, you know, I hope hope you are. I hope most people listening are too. Mm. That's lovely. So um, any words of wisdom for me as I go forth? Uh. (laughs) Do's or don'ts? Yeah, I mean... I think I think you already do this, and I'm I'm just gonna kind of double down on on Elizabeth Gilbert's advice. But it's follow your curiosity. You have this opportunity to really mm-hmm. follow it in any direction, to go down any rabbit hole, to have conversations with people who have thought really deeply about their ideas. Some of them are simple, some of them are more complicated, but um, but there's almost no idea that, in in my view, isn't worth at least hearing out. 
And I think, you know, one of the ways that you've um, been such a great host is that you have modeled for listeners how to be curious about ideas. You've shown them that if you just keep digging or ask the next question or keep going or pull a thread, you might find something extraordinary, certainly unexpected, something that maybe unlocks a door that you didn't even know was there. And I think that that has been the pleasure and joy of listening to this show for the last seven years. So thank you. That's very nice. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, it's been it's been amazing. And I can't wait to hear to hear what you do with it. I, I'm, I can't wait. Time to go, man. This is the height of the party. This is it. You're out of here. We're out of here. Party's over. We're having fun. <laughs> Let's go. It's so good. It's good. Let's not stay. Good memories. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening to our episode on Wisdom in Hindsight this week. And thank you for being such an amazing community of listeners. It's been an absolute honor to be your guide over the past seven years. I won't be far. You can still hear me on How I Built This, Wow in the World, and Wisdom from the Top. And if you want to find out more about who is on the show this week, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Christina Kala, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Kiara Brown. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. And a special thanks to Manoush Samarodi. You can hear new episodes of the show with Manoush starting in the spring. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.